0: Uh, my wife and boys have been out of town for a few days and I miss them, (laughs) miss those conversations. Uh, if you would like to go ahead and be turning to the passage we're going to be in this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 15, uh, verses one through 17. If you don't know who I am, my name is Wes Calton. Um, I'm the campus minister, the pastor for Reformed University Fellowship at Kennesaw State. Um, this is probably my third time, uh, preaching to this congregation, um, I think I taught a Sunday school back way back when, um, and I even was uh, examined and licensed in your old building, and so I had a special emotional attachment to that, but even still, um, I'm excited for y'all. This is my first time getting to be in the new building, and it's beautiful. God is is so good to y'all, um, and so I'm excited for you, uh, but RUF is the, the campus ministry of the PCA, and what that means, if you're not familiar with it, is that... Uh, the churches of our presbytery put their hands on me and, and sent me uh, to go be a pastor to that campus, to go do evangelism and preach the gospel. I get to preach weekly. Uh, I get to have students like JT involved in the ministry. Um, don't believe everything he says about me, only the good things. Uh, sad Eric couldn't be here today because uh, and we'll pray for him in his car trouble. Eric's been a faithful member of our REF committee now, I think, for uh, over a year, um, but it's it's a blessing to have the churches of our presbytery in our region send me there to that campus. Um, it's a privilege to get to, to preach the gospel on the campus and lead Bible studies and disciple students. Uh, so I love getting a chance to come and share God's word with the churches that support our ministry um, and, and get to do with you what I get to do so often on the college campus, which is preach God's word. Um, and so if you'll look with me at John chapter 15, one of the things I love doing most about my job is Is confronting students with who Jesus actually is, who who Jesus is according to his word rather than who we just believe him to be. Um, I think all of us often are guilty of fashioning Jesus after our own image, Um, especially on the college campus where there's so much um, individualism and and freedom of thought, and those things can be good things, but they can also encourage us often to just kind of make Jesus seem to be who we want him to be and, and write him off as such, and yet... He is often so much more complex uh, and challenging uh, when we actually see who he is in Scripture. And so, even this fall, we're going to be looking at who Jesus says he is. Um, we'll be looking at passages like this one from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Let me read that for us as we begin our time together in God's Word, and I'll invite you to join me in praying for God's blessing and our time together in his Word. This is God's Word for us this morning I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Would you join me in going to the throne of grace and asking for God's blessing on our time together in His Word? Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together each Lord's Day and worshiping you. We thank you that you are active and present by your Holy Spirit to lift up our humble, meager offerings to purify and cleanse them by the blood of Christ and draw us into true worship. God, we would ask that you would continue to do just that, that you would be glorified even as we turn attention to your word, that you would continue to be at work through your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be changed and transformed by your word, Father, that we would see Jesus... As he's presented to us in scripture. And that whether we've never heard this or we've heard this a thousand times. Father, you would be faithful to transform, to cultivate, to do exactly what this passage says you are doing in those who are in Christ. In pruning and cultivating fruit in our lives that brings you glory. We would ask for just that work, Father, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently, one of the endeavors I've taken upon myself, which maybe I shouldn't have done, uh, but YouTube kind of encourages you nowadays to, to try and do everything, right, uh, it is remodeling our master bathroom. And if you're wondering, I have zero experience with just about everything that that entails. But, but, YouTube has everything, Right? Um, YouTube has too much, really. I've probably, one of the mistakes I've made, I think, is watching too many YouTube videos. And now I've, I've seen like four or five different philosophies on how to do a shower pan and I'm left to choose between them. Um, but recently I had the uh, humbling experience of, of getting to that point in the project where it's time to actually start building stuff up. <laughs> uh, the tear out's done, and I did a pretty good job of that. Um, but that day came to start actually doing things, and that's when I realized how inadequate my list was how uh, even though I thought I had all the knowledge necessary, it, it very quickly became real to me that there was still a great deal of knowledge I lacked. Uh, it was most clearly displayed to me through my many, many trips back to Home Depot. Um, I have a Home Depot very close to my house, which is probably part of the problem. encourages me not to make the, the, the necessary thorough list. and I think it was the fifth trip, without exaggeration, in the same day, back to the same Home Depot, Uh, It was to the point where I was embarrassed even walking to the store, right? Because the same people are working there, and it's it's probably becoming clear to them, this guy is struggling, he's failing. Uh, And (laughs) to make matters worse, I also went back twice the next morning. And so I think it was a total of seven times, seven times. It was a biblical uh, recurrence of events. Seven times in the 24-hour span I went to that Home Depot, and on the seventh time, I didn't come out feeling holy or biblical. I came out feeling discouraged, uh, disillusioned, thinking I'm a failure, I'm a fraud, what am I doing? And I actually had a a one-on-one with a student later that day where we kind of went through some of the same uh, feelings spiritually, of kind of feeling like spiritual frauds, of being discouraged, of realizing that so many of us, the student that I was talking to in my own heart, Uh, kind of fall into this trap of thinking uh, that we can be fruitful and successful and and build great things eventually apart from Christ. I say eventually is because as I reflected on this passage and thought about my recent experience, my sad experience, is I think we often kind of can listen to Jesus and hear what he's saying about the beauty and depth of the gospel, and how much is ours in Christ, and how much is provided to us, and begin to fall into kind of the DIY, do-it-yourself trap of thinking, well, I have enough knowledge and supplies, and eventually I'll get to the point where I can do this myself. And that That's not the picture, the picture of the Christian life that Jesus gives to his disciples, because I think he's aware of the similar temptation they'll be going through. This is a profound, beautiful part of Scripture where Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And uh, he's begun this special discourse with his disciples, explaining things about the gospel that they have to understand in order to teach others, in order to proclaim the gospel. He's he's taught the beautiful truth that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's just finished revealing to them that he is going to send the Holy Spirit that they will have the help necessary. And, and yet, as he's telling him these profound truths of the gospel, it's almost as if Jesus recognizes the temptation that his disciples might look at the gift of the Holy Spirit and the beauty of, of the gospel, that he is the way, truth, and life, and start to think, well, well that is so good, that the this, this supply of, of, of knowledge and wisdom and gifts is so good. Maybe now we can go out and do it ourselves. Jesus is put us in a good place. He's got us off to a good start, and he's, he's equipping us through his spirit. And now we have everything necessary to go and do it ourselves. So Jesus pivots to the passage we have before us this morning and warns them not to think of their relationship with him as simply a jumpstart to a new life, simply an equipping and then going and good luck, hope you find your way, but rather that Jesus intends for them to understand their relationship with him as always foundational that the relationship with him is not just the beginning of a new life, it's the lifeline. And to use the metaphor that Jesus uses for us this morning, it is the vine. He is the vine, the true source of life that they're, they're never to depart from, that they always will be depended on. He wants to see his people be fruitful in him as the true vine. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I think Jesus sets that, that question before his disciples um, really, with two questions to unpack this idea that he is the true vine. The question of how can we be fruitful, and then how do we even define fruitfulness, I think are two of the main things that Jesus is putting before his disciples. First, the question, how can we be fruitful? It starts and ends with God immediately in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus immediately, through this metaphor of a vine and a vine dresser, confronts them with how they understand the source and sustaining power of their lives. Uh, speaking to his audience, speaking to his disciples in that day, as he mentions a vine and a vine dresser and fruit, they're probably thinking of a vineyard, of viticulture, and that is a biblical symbol often of blessing. That so often in God's word, wine is used as a symbol of abundance and blessing, especially in the Old Testament. And so Jesus very quickly is... Probably to them, speaking of success and fruitfulness and blessing, he's wrestling with that question that so many of us wrestle with. How do I have success in life? And immediately, it, the answer is not in them. The answer is in who Jesus is and who the Father is. That Jesus is the sustaining source of their life. That the Father is then at work as the vine dresser. And that leads into the point of where we are. As branches. And we can either be branches that are not bearing fruit that he takes away, or branches that are pruned. And on the surface of it, if we just stopped right there and didn't go forward in the passage, we might genuinely have the question, is Jesus removing us because we don't bear fruit? Um, Does this mean, then, that we are saved or justified on the basis of our works? This is, you could... Perhaps imagine the disciples kind of squirming as Jesus says this, like looking at their track record, a mixed bag, and thinking, do we have enough fruit? And yet Jesus makes it very clear as he goes on that it's impossible to be in him. It's impossible to abide in him and not bear fruit. That the only branches that don't bear fruit in this metaphor are the branches that are not truly in Christ. Um, If you've ever walked through a garden or cultivated a garden, uh, a common occurrence sometimes is perhaps an animal like a deer has been through there and stepped on some branches. There might be some broken branches that are, for all intents and purposes, broken off from the plant. And they might be hanging on. They might be caught in some other branches. But very shortly, it will be revealed through their withering and dying that they're not really connected to the life source. And as Jesus starts off by saying... uh, in me that does not bear fruit. I think that's the sort of branch he's talking about because it's clear as he goes on that it's impossible to be a branch in Christ that does not bear fruit. And yet, Jesus is not presenting to us some health and wealth gospel, here's how to have your best life now. If you just would be in me, life would be so easy because he uses this image of pruning. As we think about how it is that we are going to be fruitful in the Christian life, he makes really a promise to us that the Father is going to be at work, and yet, if you're familiar with the process of pruning, um, that doesn't necessarily speak to immediate joy. <laughs> uh, I remember years ago, I, I spent a summer as a missionary in Peru in an area that I'd been to several times, and in one of the villages, Yipa, I, I lived with a pastor, Asensio, whose whose job was peach farming. And there was uh, several times I got to go into the fields with Asensio and and try and help him <laughs> help him. Uh, you can come with me, Gringo. Uh, help him prune his peach trees. And so uh, I just remember the first time I went out with him, he handed me these uh, these clippers and told me to go do it. And I was like, "What are you talking about? I have no idea what I'm doing." And probably at least the first dozen trees that I did, he just followed behind me and probably cut off twice as much as I'd cut off. Like I was just so scared to actually cut off what he told me to cut off, that I wasn't really effectively pruning. And I was amazed at how much was cut off, at how many branches and leaves were taken off in order to cultivate good fruit-bearing trees. And so when Jesus uses this image of pruning, uh, immediately to the disciples it should be a, a, an awareness that he's not just talking about some sort of easy believism. If you would just put your faith in me instantly, your life would be Amazing. Pruning can be painful, and yet it has a very specific intentional purpose of producing fruit. Of being in the long term, when the proper season comes, when the season comes for the fruit to be born, to be effective and good for the vine, the branches. And so there's a promise instantly in this metaphor that God is at work if we are in Christ. And yet Jesus is clear that we cannot bear fruit apart from him. Apart from the vine, there can be Nothing. And this is this is such a convicting message for myself. I think it should be a challenging message, especially for us as American Christians, that, that nothing else can be the source of our life. If Christianity is just a part of our life, and yet there are other things we are looking to for our, our true identity, our purpose, our joy, our sense of fulfillment, that that is not the vision of the Christian life that Jesus wants for us. You see, in in Jesus' view, in this metaphor, if Jesus is the vine, if he's the true source of our meaning and our purpose and our fruitfulness, then we can never put our ultimate hope in any of the fruit, in any of the good things that God might give to us. We can never fall into the trap of then believing that we are worthy in God's eyes, that we are worthy as human beings because of the fruit that God has produced. And yet it's so easy, isn't it, to begin to look at things like financial success or having a well-behaved family, getting to early retirement, having exciting trips, having impressive philanthropy, potentially great things. supplant so Jesus as the source of our life. Are we sustained by Jesus or are we trying to be sustained by the gifts and the fruit that he produces in us? It'd be ridiculous as branches to think that once we produce a little bit of fruit or have a little bit of success that we could cut ourselves off from the vine and then live off the fruit that's produced. That's not how the branches work. And so this, this is a challenging passage, isn't it? It's challenging, and yet there's hope. Because as we dig deeper into this question of how we can be fruitful, Jesus turns his disciples' attention to the fact that this is God's plan. That his plan is that he would be glorified as this happens, verse eight. But this, my father, is glorified that you may that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the plan of the father is that our fruit would not be the basis upon which we are accepted by our father, but rather proof that we are our father's. This is one of the, the the core central ideas of the gospel. That Jesus' grace transforms us, and as that fruit is born, as our lives are changed, that is not the basis for which we are accepted in Christ. Instead, it is proof that we were already His. And so there's, there's once again a promise here. There's a hope for us to, to hang our hats on, not based on anything in us, but instead on the fact that this is the Father's plan. That Jesus has a very clear confidence, not that, you know, I've chosen the right people. You guys are, you have what it takes but instead that this is what my Father plans to do. And notice that right before he says that, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right? He, he says the same thing later towards the very end of the passage. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus understands that the Father is not going to withhold anything from his children that they need for life and growth in Christ. That everything that is needed for growth in Christ is going to be provided that the ultimate hope of this, this metaphor of a vine and branches is not that the branches are just impressive individuals that were wiser than some that were more spiritual than others but instead that the vine and the vine dresser working together never fail. And as Jesus teaches this to his disciples he's sit, he's hitting on I think attention for us um, many of us have probably heard the phrase once saved always saved. Um, And there's there's certainly a biblical truth there. And yet what Jesus is teaching speaks so much more to this idea of the perseverance or endurance of the saints. This idea that that our relationship with Christ is such a firm foundation that there are none that can have a true faith in him that will not endure, that will not abide, that will not bear fruit. And, And oftentimes we can run the risk of falsely communicating to people that Jesus doesn't care about what happens in our lives once we put faith in him the first time. That, that oftentimes, if we say the phrase, once saved, always saved, what people hear is, as long as at some point back in your past, you made a decision for Jesus, regardless of what happens after that, great, you're, you're covered, right? It's just like a good insurance policy. Do you have the insurance policy? Great, you're good. And yet, that's, that's not what Jesus teaches He's asking his disciples not, at some point in the past, have you made a decision to follow me? That certainly is part of our faith. But instead, do you have a living, abiding faith in me? Because if you do, I will produce fruit in you. Jesus does not fail to accomplish what he says he's going to do. And it's ultimately possible, and I think this is the turning point of the passage where Jesus begins, Jesus kind of concludes his answer to that how can you be fruitful and begins to redefine what fruitfulness is in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is not contradicting himself here. He's not throwing in. He's been saying, abide in me, abide in me. Oh, and also abide in my love, <laughs> right, as if it's some different thing. But at the, the core and heart of abiding in Jesus is abiding in his love. There's almost a chain reaction of love in this passage. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. And now that love is upon us, and it's about to pivot towards loving others. But much like a parent trying to convince their child to do something that they know is good for them, especially something that you, you know will bring them joy, so often you hear the parent saying, maybe you've said this recently, I know I have, to try and reassure them, do I love you? Right? Do I love you? Does Daddy love you? They're scared, they're not sure. Um, maybe you're trying to get them to eat spinach. <laughs> trust me, this is good for you. Maybe it's something good like chocolate or just something fun. It's amazing sometimes how much you have to twist. We find ourselves twisting our kids' arms to get them to eat things like pizza. <laughs> it's like, we know you're going to like this, right? <laughs> we love you, trust us. Jesus, at the core of this question of how are you trying to be fruitful, what are you looking for for life? He points his disciples to his love. Do you know who loves you? Do you know who loves you? Um, one of the, the harder things, and so I have to be careful talking about it because I don't want to lose it up here, but uh, yesterday I, I, I went to the funeral of uh, one of my student's parents. Um, and it was a very difficult thing, and it was also beautiful. And having this passage on my mind, thinking about it, I was uh, convicted and humbled by the consistent testimony um, as people got up and shared about um, his mother who had just very consistently displayed a life in Christ as testimony was given to the fruit that was born. And uh, it was beautiful because at the end, the pastor got up and gave just a short message, and and the, the theme of it was everything you've heard today about what this woman did and who she was, was a product of her knowing and believing that she was beloved in Christ. It was this this awesome moment because as I look at this passage, I'm tempted to go, Jesus it doesn't feel that way. There are seasons where I don't feel that fruitful. (laughs) But um, with the passing of this great saint, this beloved saint, there was a lifelong testimony of Jesus' fruit being produced. And the message that no one could deny at the end of that service was, here was someone who knew they were loved in Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. If, if you are going to abide in me, that the, the central thing has to be not how great you are, not how successful you are, not looking to the fruit to find your identity, but instead looking to me and my love for you. Growing in your understanding of the fact that no one can love you the way I do. That I love you warts and all. Peter, I know the things you're going to say, the brash things you're going to do. He's already foretold Peter's denial just earlier in this. But he looks at all of them, including Peter, and says, abide in my love. The same love that the Father has loved me before the foundation of the world, I have loved you. And so if we're to abide in Christ, if we are to truly be fruitful, we must never depart from the love of Christ as the core identity of who we are as children of God. That We are loved, not because we're fruitful, but we are loved so that we can be fruitful. That's beautiful and encouraging to us, but Jesus does not stop there. He, He then begins to turn and continue on this theme of love. And I think as he does that, he begins to answer another important question related to Jesus' identity as a true find, which is, what does it even mean to be fruitful? What does it even mean to be fruitful? And he begins to unpack that starting in verse 10 by pointing his disciples to the fact that, that being fruitful in Christ means we begin to actually experience the love of Christ as we follow him. That Jesus desires for us not just to intellectually ascribe to who he is, into his love, but actually to enjoy him. Right? If you love me, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus' words here remind me so much of of David's words in Psalm 51, his, his famous psalm where he's crying out for forgiveness, which is always striking to me because he's already been forgiven. Um, when, When David is writing that psalm, Nathan the prophet immediately, once he's confronted with his sins, says, you've been forgiven. And yet it's this great psalm where David is crying out for mercy and forgiveness, and he confesses his sin, and he moves into a time where he's not just saying, cleanse me, but restore me. Restore the joy of your salvation to my soul, David says. He recognizes that God desires not just for him to know that he's forgiven, but also to rejoice in his forgiveness. To delight in it. And, and just like uh, Jesus is saying to so his David recognizes that that will then result in him going to others. And sharing about the God of grace. That, that if his lips are cleansed and forgiven. He will be able to tell others about God's grace. And Jesus recognizes that if they delight and rejoice in God's forgiveness and love for them. They can't help but go to others. They can't help but go to others because the first commandment that Jesus calls their attention to when he says, if you keep my commandment, starts in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He wants them to practice self-sacrificing love modeled on the same love with which he has loved them. That as we abide in the love of Christ, real fruitfulness is first measured by love for others. And I love how Jesus, it could be really esoteric and kind of abstract for us to just kind of generically talk about God's love and being loved by God. But it gets messy, doesn't it? It gets very tangible as soon as he looks at us and says, go and love other people like I've loved you. Because then we can't be abstract, right? It's real people with real problems, with real mess. We are messy folks. And yet Jesus calls us to try and love each other the way he has loved us. And I think it, it, it relates so well to abiding because it's impossible for us to do that without then returning to Christ's love for us, right? Because that's what Jesus does even here. As he commands them to go and love like he has loved them, he reminds them, greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends you are my friends. Jesus is about to lay down his life for his friends. And so even as he calls them to love self-sacrificially, he reminds them that it's only possible because of his love for them. And yet it's also beautiful because we then become partners in the kingdom. Genuine fruitfulness, what does it mean to be fruitful, it means that we are actually participating in the work of King Jesus. In the things that he loves and cares about. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he's in the Four Loves, talks about the love of friendship and how it kind of contrasts with romantic love. Uh, talks about this image of romantic love being two lovers kind of standing eye to eye, staring at each other's eyes, whereas the love of friendship being a love that stands shoulder to shoulder, of people working together and moving towards common interests or a common horizon. Um, and I couldn't help but be reminded of Lewis's words in this passage because Jesus introduces this idea of friendship as he invites his disciples to not just be servants, but actually know what he and his father are planning, to to know what they're doing with this self-sacrificing love, and invite his disciples to stand shoulder to shoulder with him. He calls them friends. And so genuine fruitfulness in Christ is not us continuing to serve our own interests and desires, but actually beginning to live for King Jesus, to actually stand shoulder to shoulder with him, And fight for his causes. And his causes so often involve loving others sacrificially. Showing people the gospel even as we proclaim the gospel to them. Through self-sacrificing love. And it's inevitable. It's impossible for us to actually pursue that task without returning, without abiding. Without abiding in the love of Christ. Jesus includes his teaching on this point with his disciples by reminding them of just that, by reminding them of grace, that none of this would be possible apart from the grace of Christ. Because you can imagine how his disciples would be hearing this, and as he says this, these very profound things, I'm not calling you servants, I'm calling you friends, because I've revealed what the Father has said to me, that there would be once again a temptation perhaps for pride, a temptation for, wow, we're we're Jesus' friends. We're we're pretty high up the totem pole. Once again, to perhaps think like, you know, maybe we are good at this evangelism thing, or Jesus must have seen something in us. <laughs> Verse sixteen: You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed the, you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Jesus understands. That true, free grace is what is going to empower them. And that if they forget about the grace of God at work in them, they won't really be able to love others the way Jesus loves us. It reminds me so much of of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, where right after one of the most profound statements of the free, forgiving grace that so many of you are familiar with, uh, he also states God's purpose to actually bring about good works in us. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then Paul continues in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear how similar what Paul says there about the radical free grace of God, transforming us to then walk in good works? Jesus says, I chose you, you didn't choose me. You've been redeemed by grace. My love has been set upon you, not because of anything in you. And then he concludes in a a similar way to Paul in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. As you understand my grace and love for you, as you look to me as the only true vine, the only true source of identity and meaning and purpose and forgiveness in life, it will then enable you to bear the fruit of love for one another. Would you join me in prayer?